Please turn with me now in the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8, and we're turning to the fourth plague, which begins in verse 20. And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning, and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, and on your people, and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground in which they stand. And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. And Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me. And Moses said, Indeed, I am going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, but his, from his servants and from his people. But let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully any more in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, in some sense we have heard these things before and we shall hear them again. We see the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh. We see his deceitfulness and wickedness. And on the other hand, we see your great hand of power as you bring forth these increasingly powerful and destructive plagues upon the land. And Lord, we might be tempted then to gloss over these things. But Lord, you have directed our attention to one particular part of this text one particular aspect that is new, and we pray, Heavenly Father, that our attention would be directed to the difference, to the distinction that you make between your people and his people. We pray, Lord, that this would do us good and that it would be a, a great spiritual blessing for us, whatever our condition, whatever our state, that it would be useful and blessed, and, Lord, that you would be glorified in our reception of this, your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we come to this final portion of Exodus chapter 
8, which is the fourth plague, the plague of flies. Now, the context really has become like a, a skipping CD that Pharaoh has once again hardened his heart. Once again, God is going to have to send an even more severe plague than the last one. In this case, instead of the frogs, there will be flies. And this time, it will not be a mere annoyance as the frogs were. They were there, but they weren't destroying any crops, any greenery. They were simply there causing an annoyance and irritation to people as they were disgusted by these creatures being everywhere. And even in their kneading bowls, they were to be found. But now he is sending the flies, and these flies will actually eat. These flies will actually destroy some great portion of the vegetation of the land. And beyond this continuing story of the escalation of the plagues, of which you could say that there are these ten ones, it plagues each one more severe than the last in various ways, and, what, and at every point, Pharaoh continues to harden his heart, save the very last one, of course. What's new and what's different? Well, the answer is what is, what is emphasized in the heart of this, starting in verse 22. And in that day, I will set apart, set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. This is the great focus of this particular plague, and it is our focus as a sermon this evening, as we, uh, I tell you the title, which is God Distinguishes His People. See, that's the simple point, that God is making a difference. He is distinguishing between His people and the people of the world. Now, it's a plain and straightforward manner. This is what happens, generally speaking. Shepherds are going to do that with their sheep. They mark them out. Even in this land, which seems to be bereft of, of all dangerous animals, and you don't need to, to have the sheep under the constant watch of a shepherd, as you might in the, the Middle East and in other parts of the world, yet even here, of course, there's spray paint. And, and the, the shepherd puts spray paint on the sheep so he knows which one are his and to distinguish them from someone else. And he's normally carefully to do it either in a color or in a pattern that's going to look different than the shepherds around. Because what would be the point of having a mark that looks exactly like everyone else's sheep? There is a distinction to be made between his sheep and other sheep. I would say the same thing goes with human groups, with groups of people, with leaders of every kind in this world. Having not, some, yes, having to do with religion. We know the distinguishing mark, for instance, of the Sikh people are very, very, very external. And they have these various things. What does it mean to be a good Sikh? So much of it just have, has to do with something you put on your head and something you have a, a, around your body and, and carrying a silver dagger with you. And, and that makes you a Sikh. There is a distinguishing mark to be applied in, in these ways. I should do, say that, by the way, even with less formal groups than that, less religious groups. There are always going to be these distinguishing marks. We certainly had them in the Marine Corps. Well, let me say that God, though he is vastly, vastly different and set apart from any ordinary group, any ordinary leader in these ways, that he also makes a difference he distinguishes between his people and other men's people, other leaders' people, in this case, Satan's people. It's, and I want to say before we go any further in this, that this is not something that God's people came up with off their own bat. 
This is at, at God's initiative and God's determined will that there should be a difference between his people and Pharaoh's people. Pharaoh, also Satan's people. And let me say also that I'm not going to belabor this point in terms of the text. I'm going to go, yes, briefly over the points of the text. Um, but as we are focusing on this particular aspect, I will then spend more time than usual in the application because the applications of this are many. Well, again, the, the, the title tonight is God Distinguishes His People. And there are these three points. I will set apart Goshen, the land destroyed, and pointless negotiations. One, I will set apart Goshen to the land destroyed, and three, pointless negotiations. So first, I will set apart Goshen. Verse 20, And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they may serve me. Or ounce, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Now, as a observation here, the Lord moves very quickly on from the demand to the threat because there's absolutely no doubt of what is going to happen. Pharaoh is not going to let the people go. So he moves quickly on to that. And the threat this time is, as I say, swarms of flies. Once again, directed to Pharaoh personally, it says on you as well as on your servants. And once again, it's going to be invasive. It's going to come into the houses as well as into the ground around about. But here's a crucial point. Here's, here's where that now we've moved into different territory than we've seen beforehand. In verse 22, in that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. Now, we have in various times tried to define the word holy. It's not particularly easy to do so. And there are many different aspects and elements to holiness. But one way to summarize the concept of holiness is simply to say it's set apart. God himself is holy and he is fundamentally set apart from all that is not God, all that is not godly, set apart from all that is sin. And God's people, if they are holy, likewise they are set apart. We said there's the difference between common utensils and things that are set apart. We have common utensils, for instance, maybe to wash the car. We have a, a bucket for that, and it doesn't matter how we treat it because it's, it's common. And then we have special vessels, set-apart vessels for special occasions made out of silver, made out of, made out of fine china, for instance. They're set apart from the common use. Well, God says he is going to set apart the land of Goshen because the work of holiness is first and foremost a work of God himself. He is the one who is set apart, and it is by his determination that he sets apart his people. I will set apart the land of Goshen, that no swarms of flies shall be there. It's not going to happen. This now destructive plague is not going to reach them in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. Remember, in order that you may know that I'm the Lord, that is the whole point of this. Pharaoh's, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Well, he's going to find out. The Lord is going to show him who the Lord is. I will show you. I will. You will soon enough know who the Lord is. 
But particularly, he says, in the midst of the land. He's the Lord in the midst of the land. And he is able to make a distinction between his people. There he is in the middle of the land of Egypt, in the territory of Egypt. And he is able to distinguish between his own people in the land of Goshen and the Egyptians round about. Well, as I say, this is reiterated then in in the way it actually happens. In verse 26, only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was, sorry, this is uh, in later portions, and it's repeated actually in the subsequent uh, plague, such as the plague of of hail in Exodus 9.26. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. And we see this is continued and continued. In fact, the, the heights of the distinction that God will make between his own people and the Egyptians, the godless and unbelieving Egyptians, of course, happens in the Passover. And where the, the angel of death passes over some, those who have the mark of the living God, those who have the mark of the Messiah, the, the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, he will pass over, but the others he will come and slay the firstborn. We see this distinction that is to be made. Well, God says he will set apart Goshen. And secondly, we do see that the land of the Egyptians is destroyed. In verse 24, And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Now, that's the word that the authorized has. It's a word the New King James has, corrupted. And the word could mean that. Um, Edwards, for instance, thought thought so. It actually played a role in his famous spider letter. as He spoke of spiders removing the corruption of the land. In in the sense, that's true of removing flies. But far more likely is the normal and greater sense of that word, which is simply destroy. Far more likely it is that the land was destroyed because of the swarm of flies. The flies went out in their great numbers, described as swarms, and they went about destroying vegetation. We experience this on very minor scale. If you, for instance, uh, have roses anywhere, and you see that there are certain insects that come, aphids, and it destroys the, the rose plants. Well, uh, these great swarms of flies are able to do much, much more than that. Now, the point of all this is that we have now crossed over from warning shots. Okay, we were in in previous times turning the water into blood. That was a warning shot. And even the frogs, again, they came and and it was disgusting to them and it was a great irritation, but they've done no lasting damage. Now, now Now we're doing some real damage. We have crossed over a boundary into that the land is increasingly going to be destroyed by these plagues. And that's a picture, isn't it, of the final judgment. One day all the land, all this wicked world will be destroyed. There will be no further warning shots, but rather the elements themselves will melt with fervent heat as we heard this morning. And we're reminded that God means business and we should certainly listen to his warning shots. We should listen to his word before we must be crushed by his hand. So the land of the Egyptians, it was destroyed, just as he promised. And thirdly, we see, we've, we've seen that God is going to set apart Goshen, but rather, on the other hand, the land of the Egyptians is destroyed. Why? Because he's making a difference. He's making a distinction between his people and the people of the Egyptians. 
And thirdly, we see that there are some pointless negotiations going on. They are pointless because Pharaoh already knows exactly what's going to happen. God knows, of course, what's going to happen. But these things have to play out nonetheless. In verse 25, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, go, sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, it is not right for us to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? We will go three days a journey into the wilderness and sacrifice the Lord our God as he will command us. Now, precisely what is meant here is not certain, so I'm not going to make too much on exactly what is meant. But there's some element of the reality of them sacrificing in the land, the land which is defiled, the land which is dedicated to idols, and, of course, all the animals and all the, the rest of it itself. It's, it's in various ways connected with idolatry that is not acceptable. And, and the sacrifice and worship of God is going to be defiled by their, continue, by their presence in this place. And likewise, in fact, their sacrificing to the Lord, it would itself be offensive to the Egyptians. And so there must be a separation. There must be a distinction. They must go elsewhere to go rightly sacrifice to the Lord. And in brief, let me just observe this is... The, the reality of regulative worship, right? Uh, we, don't, we don't worship the way the world around us worships. Uh, that would be an abomination to the living God. Rather, he tells us how and when and where and all the rest of it, exactly the, circ- the, the elements of worship uh, that which we should carry out. This is, um, this is the will of God, that our worship should be pure and it should be holy. And I will say as well that this points us yet again, this theme of distinction. If there's not separation, there's not even acceptable worship, as I say, something that the church today should learn. All right. But again, of the distinction that is even visible. Uh, who, is the, who are the people of the Lord? Well, you can see them. Uh, they're the ones who have left the wicked land and are there physically out somewhere else worshiping. Now, of course, we uh, everything that happened in the Exodus was very much in physical terms, but these things have their spiritual implications. Again, things that the church today should remember. Well, that was on by the by. Uh, what we see now is this pointless negotiation going on in verse 28. I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you will not go very far away, intercede for me. Well, already you see his heart, don't you? This is not a heart that is yielded entirely to the Lord. This is a heart that is already has this, this partial and incomplete submission. He is making conditions on his obedience to the command of the Lord. The Lord has said, let my people go. There's no further uh, qualifications. There are no further negotiations. When the living God tells you to do something, you simply do it. And the, the idea then of making some qualification, it is pointless. You might as well not even bother doing it at all because a half-hearted obedience is no obedience. And Pharaoh uh, could have saved us all a lot of time rather than saying, okay, you can go, but don't go very far. What it revealed is a heart that was not submitted to the Lord, a heart that had already decided what he was going to do and soon enough he was going to do it anyways. 
Well, he does say in the end, intercede for me. And once again, there's this intercession as, as Moses is, is the intercessor even for these wicked people and for Pharaoh, the, the embodiment or rather the type of, of Satan. And he intercedes that the flies might go away. And they do. But in verse 29, Moses said, Indeed, I am going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. But that Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore, and not letting the people go to sacrifice the Lord. Not Pharaoh deal deceitfully. It was very plain to Moses, even as he was having this discussion. He didn't. Need, he wouldn't have had to say to the, these words if Pharaoh had wholeheartedly said, "Go, just go. You go wherever you want. Do whatever you need to do to serve the Lord. I, I've I've had enough, and I've I've seen the Lord's hand in all this, and I'm ready to submit now." No, it was clear to the Lord. It was clear to Moses, and so he said, "But let not the Lord, let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully anymore." When he says one thing with his lips and intends another thing with his heart. That's again why these negotiations were so pointless. Apart from a full and complete submission to the Lord, why are we even having this discussion? You know, sometimes that's the way it happens in pastoral counseling. We, there, is, we have, there is some issue that has arisen in someone's life, perhaps with their family, perhaps with some other uh, issue, and, and there's a discussion. And it's very clear what the Word of God says, and, the, and you, you lay out the very clear Word of God, and, and it comes back to you in some sort, of, some sort of distorted form, some sort of qualification here and qualification there. And though I, I, I normally don't actually say it out loud, I say, why are we even having this discussion? You're not willing to listen to the Word of God. You, 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 have, you already have set limits on what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do. And I know that even what I say, even what you've said now, you're not really going to do it, are you? Save us the time. Save us the time. These negotiations are pointless. Until we come to the Lord with a full willingness to submit, let's not waste our breath. Well, verse 32, we know, of course, the inevitable. But Pharaoh hardened his heart from this time also, neither would he let the people go. Well, all of this, as we say, God distinguishes his people. That's the larger point here. And we want to move now quickly on to application of these things. I want to tell you about these marks of distinction that the Lord sets upon his people. And there are, I'm sure there are more than this, but I, I, I draw your attention to five marks of distinction the Lord puts on his people. We don't have a land of Goshen. Right? We, we live together with the people of this world and we don't, we're not, we don't do what they did in medieval times of having monasteries, nunneries and so forth in order to live in a physically different place. But there are yet these marks of the distinction and they run deeper and they are more powerful than even what happened in the land of Goshen. The Lord has always had his marks of distinction and let me tell you about them. First of all, the most straightforward an obvious application is that God deals differently with us, even in this world. Right? That is the point. The Lord was acting even in this life, and he made a very clear distinction between his people and Pharaoh's people in the way that he did it. And he specifically said that you may know that I'm the Lord in the midst of the land. Even before Judgment Day, he makes a distinction in the way that he deals with his own people compared to the way he deals with the people of the world. 
Now, it should be very comforting to us. It should be something that reminds us of the goodness of God as he deals with his own people. And I would say once again, we, we turn to Romans chapter 1 to see a little bit about this. Uh, last time we were dealing with the earlier portion of the chapter. As we, see, we say, it was not a lack of evidence that kept, kept Pharaoh from faith. He had all the evidence he needed to. But rather, in his own twisted heart, he took the, the evidence that was so clear and, and he twisted it and he turned away from its implications so that he refused to see the hand of God in these things. But, you know, Romans chapter 1 goes on to explain what happens to those who act in such a way. That God gives them over. In Romans chapter 1, verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And so it goes. This is the judgment of God in this world. This is not the wrath of God poured out in its finality. Some people make that mistake and say, oh, well, hell is, is only like this. No, no, no. Romans chapter 1 is about what happens now. Romans chapter 2, that's about what happens in eternity. And that's the wrath of God being poured out upon the, the wicked in hell forever. But even right now, God is making a distinction between his people his people and, and the world's people, and that he is giving them over to these vile passions, to this wickedness. And therefore, in some, although it is sad as we see the world, the culture around us going down the tubes, we're reminded that this is a work of God himself to make a distinction between his people and the people of this world. This is indeed a foretaste of what will happen in which he will separate the sheep from the goats. Already there is a distinction being made in his dealings with his people. Now let me say, I do not mean that we do not suffer in this world. Oh, we suffer. I do not mean that God's people are exempted from various natural disasters and other things which happen. But I want us to understand that truly he does make a distinction in the way he, he deals with us compared to the way he deals with the wicked in this world. All that, as I say, a foretaste of what will happen when he will separate the sheep from the goats, because that final separation is certainly coming. In verse, uh, as I read in Matthew 25, in verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Now, that moment of separation is the, the core, is the, is the thing, isn't it? I mean, everything else is, is, uh, is a footnote in comparison to that day of separation. There will be such a day in which God will make a, a firm and final and obvious and lasting distinction between his elect people and all the wicked. But yet there are foretastes, as I mentioned, in the ways that he deals with his people even now. Now, beyond that most fundamental mark, 
Secondly, I'll go on to some other of these marks that God makes even now. Secondly, there is baptism. Who, the question is, who are the Lord's? Who are the Lord's people? Those who have been baptized to, in, to some extent. It's, it's a fundamental and an essential element of the, the difference that God makes upon his people. Now, just because it's neglected, just because it's abused, widely abused, it doesn't mean that it's meaningless. Right? It's not meaningless. Just consider then the implications of somebody being baptized in the Muslim world. Find out just how meaningless it is. You know, you can go to all the Bible studies you want to. You can even attend church services on Sunday. And in most Muslim nations, that's not going to, that's not going to cause you serious and real problems. Be baptized, and now you're in for it. Now, now you're about to be disowned by your family. Now you're about to break the law as you have apostatized from Islam. Now you're about to come in for some real and violent persecution. Now you're not going to be able to hold any decent job. All right, that's, that's the line of demarcation as understood by them. But that's only because of the prior reality of the significance that is given in the word of God to baptism. Yes, there are people who are baptized who are not really believers. Or even some who are real believers and are not baptized, as our confession says. But ordinarily, and in the broader scope, yes, God puts this seal of baptism. And particularly, I want to say, young people, children, covenant children, you who have this mark upon you, God is saying, you're mine. It's, it's, it's the mark of engagement to be the Lord's. And you have to trample over your baptism to, to leave the Christian faith. God has given this. God has, has, has given this to you that you might always look at yourself and say, I belong to the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He calls you to embrace that in faith. He calls you to embrace your baptism and the gospel that is enshrined in that baptism in faith. And you should do that. A reminder that your baptism sets you apart as the Lord's. Thirdly, the Lord's day. Who are the Lord's? That's the question again. How do we know who are the Lord's people? Do we have any clue? Yes, we do. You know who it is? People that are here on the Lord's day. Right. That, that is another very fundamental and visual distinction between God's people and and Satan's people. Those who listen to his word, those who set aside his day. Because, you know, he claims ownership over your time and not just one day, but all of it. He says, six days I want you to work and one day I want you to rest. All right, which day, Lord? Well, from creation, we're going to remember this great work of my both creation and my resting on the seventh day. And that used to be the seventh day. But then there was an event that was far more powerful, far more significant, even than the creation of the whole universe. And that was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I am going to change that day now. I have the prerogative of doing so. And now it's the first day of the week. My people will be seen by them gathering together and sanctifying and setting apart the first day of the week, the Lord's day. Who are the Lord's people? All you have to do is drive to church and you will see those around us who carry on as if it were any other day of the week, doing their pleasure, trampling on and defiling the Lord's day. And you say, how sad. They're openly breaking the Sabbath and in all likelihood, they're not Christians. And the world around and you yourself see there is a difference between God's people and the world's. God is making a distinction between his people and others, purely and indeed, by who is in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. That's very important, isn't it? 
As in our day, the Sabbath is under increasing attack as, as church after church decide that it's no longer an important and significant thing and, 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 be, and continues to make concessions and compromises in this way. Yet the Lord himself has determined that this is a, a mark of distinction. And who are we to decide that we are going to be chameleons and to blend in with the world as we try to diminish the significance of how differently we live on the Lord's day. Well, there is God's dealings, finally, which has to do with the, the, the division that he's making on the, the final day. But even in now, there are foretaste. And secondly, I said there were baptism. He puts his mark, his seal on people, even as he used to do with circumcision. Now he does with baptism. Thirdly, the, there is the Lord's day. Who is, who is observing the Lord's day? Fourthly, of course, there is a set-apart life, and we're moving from what is more external, maybe, to what is more internal. And a holy life, that is absolutely something that tells us who is the Lord's. Well, those who live a godly life, those who are holy, those who in thought and word and deed are being obedient to the word of God. In thought, having the mind of Christ that is so fundamentally different, isn't it, than the mind of Satan? There could be no more different things uh, imaginable. There are polar opposites, the mind of Satan or the mind of Pharaoh and the mind of Christ, who laid aside all of his, his, holy, his, his uh, glorious prerogatives and paraphernalia and voluntarily came and humbled himself he came in the form of a bondservant, and he adopted, indeed, the lifestyle of a bondservant, being obedient, even obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. That's the mind of Christ, coming not to be served, but to serve. That is so different than the mind of the wicked world. That is so different than those around us. And those who have that kind of, of, of mind, they will be noted. They will be distinguished from the world around them. Thought and in word... Also, yes, what we say, the absence, of course, of foul language, the absence of vile and coarse language, and certainly of taking the Lord's name in vain, as this wicked world seems to delight in so doing. They set themselves apart, don't they? They have that mark of their, in the words that they use and the curse words that are in their mouth. They identify themselves. They say, please don't think that I'm a Christian. I'm one of the devil's people in the way that I speak. And you can tell just the way I speak. Peter did that, didn't he? He said, you don't believe me? I'm going to tell you. I'm not one of his disciples. Let me prove it to you in the curse words in my mouth. Let me prove it to you. And then they believed him. Then they believed him, even though it wasn't true. But they believed him because of the way of, that he spoke. And brothers and sisters, how different it should be for us, the words that we speak, how different it should be. The manner, as I say, not only the content of what we say, but also the manner in which we say it. That it should be seasoned with salt. Seasoned, it's different, it's distinct. It's seasoned with, with grace and with love. We speak the truth in love. The world doesn't know how to do it. That's why they encounter truth and they think it's unloving. Because they themselves would never ever confront somebody unless they, they, they dislike them. It's not true with us. When we speak the truth, we speak with, with love. In thought and in word and in deed, we are different. Yes, indeed, the things that we do are going to be different. The fruit of the Spirit should be evident in everything that we do. It should be obvious to an unbelieving world that we are different. Again, this is so directly opposite to the chameleon Christ 
we mentioned this morning, and to the stealth Christian, the Christian who's just trying to, to fly under the radar and hope not to be noticed by the world around lest he be persecuted. Well, those who live a set-apart life, they will be different than the world. Absolutely. And let me say that those who seek to be exactly like the world around them, that's no badge of honor. This is self-condemnation, right? If you actually succeed in being a stealth Christian in which no one can tell that you're actually any different and you are perfectly accepted by the worldly as one of their own, what does that say about you? They have no problems whatsoever in accepting you at perfectly as you are. There's no pushback. There's no, there's, there's no elements of discontent with the way that you speak, the things that you do. You're completely fine with the people of this world, and they're fine with you. What does it say? Probably that you are no different than them. It's, it's speaking to an inward reality that you're accepted because you really aren't the Lord's. It's no badge of honor if you accomplish that. That's a self-condemnation. But on the other hand, any sincere attempt to live by the precepts and principles of Scripture will be distinct enough. We don't have to add to that, you know. The Pharisees, they didn't really want to be obedient. They didn't really want to obey the word of God. They actually recoiled from the real word of God, the real law, the, the actual things that God were giving to them. And so they made up all sorts of artificial, external sort of things. Things that... The Lord didn't tell them to do, but they decided that they were going to do in order to establish themselves as being of the godly, of being of God's people. Well, it didn't work for them, and it's not going to work for us either. Let us not add to the things that the word of God has so clearly put and imagine that some externals are going to make up then for the the core of it. Again, of the fruit of the spirit of things like love, things like joy, things like peace, the things that cannot be faked. These are the things that should distinguish the people of God, and it's more than enough. So there's a set-apart life. Fifthly, and finally, and perhaps most appropriately for our situation tonight, it is church membership. Question again, who are the Lord's? The answer is those who are in membership in one of his local churches. Those who are in membership in one of his local churches. Look, I understand that there are exceptions But even our own stand, this is no Catholic confession of faith. This is no Catholic dogma, but rather our own Westminster confession of faith says uh, of the visible church, the local church, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And if that is true, then we understand that membership in the local church is absolutely a mark that God himself has put to distinguish his people. Now, let me be a little bit more specific than membership in a local church. Let me say it needs to be in a good church because membership in a liberal church or in a compromised church means very little, which is one of the reasons why we should not remain in a liberal church, for instance, because it's going to send a confusing signal to everyone. Who is on the Lord's side? We don't know. It's, it's indistinct. There's, there's, uh, we, there are all kinds of, of people who are obviously not listening to the word of God in this this church, and then there are some others. We don't know which one it is. It loses its distinctiveness. It loses its, its function as being a mark of distinction that God would have us to have. And B, it's predicated on the idea of a discriminate membership and of church discipline. 
Again, even in a good church, if everyone is received into communicate membership without any kind of distinction, without any kind of discipline, then that itself diminishes that mark. No, of course not. In order for this mark of membership to mean anything, it's, it's got to be based on the idea of, of church discipline, that we receive those who have a credible profession of faith and those who live in basic accordance with the word of God and do not deny in their life by obviously contradicting these things in their sin. Well, for instance, Second Timothy, so many passages I could mention, but Second Timothy 2.17 says this, their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of the sort who have strayed concerning the truth saying that the resurrection is already past. And they overthrow the, the faith of some. They're, they're preaching this heresy, this error. But verse 19, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. You see the basic idea, the very basic principle there. God knows who is his. He's not in any confusion. Yet, he expects that this difference is going to be worked out in the life of the church. And so that there is a departure, there is a cleansing, there is an element of church discipline in order that those who are his might be all the more fitted for right service. You see, now all these things being true, all the things that I've just said, church membership is truly a useful foretaste. Right? Question, who are the lords? Do we have any clue? Do we have any idea who's going to be standing on that, that day? Who's going to be on the right hand of the Lord and who's going to be on the left? Or do we say, look, we have no idea? No, we do have an idea. God has given us a foretaste of these things. Are there exceptions? Yes. But on the whole, on the whole, if those conditions are met, a good church that embraces the whole counsel of God and, and administers the sacraments rightly, those marks of a true church, and that, that church discipline is in place, right? If that's true, and if you are in membership of that church, that should be something helpful for you. That should be a useful... No, you don't rest all your weight on that. You rest that on Christ. Or he's the one that you're clinging to in faith, Right? He's the Savior. But isn't it useful to have that little badge, that badge of membership in a, a good local church in which the, in the, the elders and in the, in the judgment of charity, not that you're perfect, not that we have some, some amazing uh, spiritual vision as if we were apostles and, and know some, in some supernatural way. No. No, but, but you've been examined for membership. And we see that as much as can be told, as much as can be heard and, and seen with the eye, that you have embraced Christ as your Savior. And that the way that you live does not belie that fact. That should mean something. And indeed it does. And it is to this that we turn. Let us pray now. Heavenly Father, we are thankful, Lord, that you are so good to your people. You do not treat us in the same way that you treat the wicked, but rather, Lord, that you make a distinction, a final distinction, of course, being that separation of the sheep and the goats and the great day of judgment to come. 
And even now, Lord, you have set apart your people by various marks, whether the mark of baptism or of the mark that you give them in the power of the Holy Spirit of a set-apart life. And Lord, as we particularly consider and turn to the mark of church membership, Lord, we are thankful indeed that you are adding to our number and how we pray, Lord God, that not only would we in number, but also in quality and reality of changed lives, of transformed lives that the world would see, yes, that you make a difference. You are the Lord in the midst of the land, making a distinction between your people and the people of this world. Pray, Lord, your blessing as we turn to this work of bringing members into the church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.